So, Will. Yes? This movie features, I would say, the best performance given by an American Idol contestant. Okay, you know, to be fair, I did not see any of Taylor Hicks' stage performances, so I don't know that I can fully judge this. (laughs) I will say, I also have not seen From Justin to Kelly, (laughs) which has shocked our guest. And we should acknowledge, Smash has its defenders, those who felt the Mick fever in the spring of 2006 or 2007. A famous MAGA supporter, Catherine McPhee. Oh, I didn't know that. You didn't know that? Oh, she gave like a ton of money to the Trump campaign. I did not either, not Catherine. Yikes. No, the the like MAGA head that I was aware of was Kirstie Alley, because I've been watching a lot of Cheers in the last year. Oh yeah, that one's wild. Yep. Anyway, American like, Idol. Girl, go back to Colin Jenny. It's just such a fascinating place in our culture. The fact that it's still on baffles me to this day. It's only kind of still on. The fact that it was canceled. No, it wasn't canceled. They decided to end it. Like at the end of whatever season that was, like Ryan Seacrest like signed off, like this is the end of American Idol, and then goes, for now. And then it was off the air for a year. And then they brought it back. I still can't believe Miss Katy Perry is a judge on American Idol. I don't know. She feels exactly like the kind of person who should be a judge on American Idol. And I don't mean that as an insult. I'm just surprised. I do. That she lasted this long. We saw how long Nicki Minaj and Mariah Carey survived on that show. I feel like they both were like, oh. They I'm also above just this. hated each other. I should leave. <laughs> yeah, I American have- Idol occupied yeah. an interesting place in the culture in that. In the 2000s, like, around the time this movie came out, and even for a couple years after, it was just an absolute ratings juggernaut, where they'd air two or three episodes a week. They would all do incredible numbers, and it wasn't a guarantee, but people from the show were occasionally turning into, like, genuine stars. You know, the biggest examples obviously being Carrie Underwood and Kelly Clarkson and Jennifer Hudson. But you also had Daughtry making it for a while. Right. That's the thing, like, he and Jennifer Hudson are examples, like, you didn't even have to win in order to have a career built out of it. Winning also could be detrimental to your career in some ways, because, especially with Daughtry, because the contract you have to sign as an American Idol winner is so rigid. They absolutely would not have let Jennifer Hudson do this movie unless American Idol made all of the profits. Right. Had she won. So in a way, they got Jennifer Hudson got fourth because without her, like, if she had actually won, we never would have had Jennifer Hudson as we know her. Well, first of all, she didn't come in fourth. She came in seventh. She was in seventh? Yeah. Seventh? I don't know. Uh, maybe Chris what Daughtry was fourth. Doing? Chris Daughtry but... was fourth. I can't believe I remember this. Who won that season? Well, the Hudson season. <laughs> Wasn't it Fantasia? Fantasia? I remember there was a week where they were both in the bottom and it was like... And they did actually have discussions about casting Fantasia in this movie early on, but couldn't make it happen. What's funny is that, like, for years after this, if the judges on American Idol told somebody, like, yeah, you know, we're not really sure that you're right for this. We're not sure that this is a direction we want to go in. Every once in a while, there'd be contestants who'd, like, throw it back in their face and be like, yeah, well, Jennifer Hudson came in seventh. So what do you know? And, and she judge- has an Oscar now. <laughs> and the judges would just be like, what do you want from us? Like, you fine, declare us invalid, but you came on our show. For the exposure, now get out of the way so I can sing. I mean, I assume the producers had at least three Jennifer Hudson lines seated among the crowd, so it would come up at least once. 
I mean, with as many people as they'd have to see, I'm sure multiple people were like, Sir Jennifer Hudson, y'all just y'all missed it. Although, y'all, 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 y'all. I mean, I did not watch that season, so I don't know what the judges said to Jennifer Hudson at any point. But at the point she was eliminated, that was based on people calling up on their phones to call a particular number for each contestant that they wanted to vote for. I do remember that. I, yep. I've done that, and I've VH, I've recorded it on a VHS. Yeah, I've, I've called it. I I placed some Idol. votes on American Idol. Yeah, we're American. <laughs> it was I, a genuine phenomenon. I remember um, the season with Sanjaya. The Washington Post style section ran a cover piece that was a paper doll of Sanjaya with all of his different hairdos, and you could cut them out and switch <laughs> them out. I just think. I do think a solid reason why Jennifer Hudson did not make it farther is because America hates black women. And also the fact that she didn't fit the conventional star look probably played a role in why she didn't get votes. I think the last season I watched was was when Jordan Sparks won, but that was also the season where Melinda Doolittle was there, another black woman who was objectively a better singer than Jordan Sparks but was like an older black woman who had been like, yeah, I originally wanted to just be a backup singer on American Idol, but then I like auditioned and they were like, no, you should actually sing here. And she was like, oh, okay. And then she accidentally became a star. (laughs) That was the season where, where they split them in two groups and they had her in the middle and they were like, Melinda, you're at the top. Now you need to pick who else is in the top with you and who's losers. Amazing. And then she sat down in the middle of the stage and I was just like, this is chaos and this is the best show ever. Yeah. And I think like, it's weird to talk about like what a gigantic hit American Idol was then because the TV landscape is so splintered now. Like nothing is going to be a hit on that scale ever again. But like, this is something we talked about on the show years ago. The fact that the Shrek 2 home video release anchored itself around an American Idol parody. <laughs> a couple weeks ago, I was flipping through HBO. I was like, I'm going to pick a movie I've never heard of and watch it. And I saw Hugh Grant. So I watched this movie called American Dreams, which was a parody of American Idol and the Bush administration. It was very strange. It was like the most 2005 movie I've ever seen in my life. I can fully remember being a Southern Baptist child looking at the name American Idol I'm like, didn't the Israelites have a golden calf? Like, isn't this bad? Should we be watching this? This show is idolatry. <laughs> it was like, oh my god, mother, are you are you sure this is okay? Well, I am glad that your parents were <laughs> weren't feeding into this and were just allowing you to watch the show. Josh, on your first episode of this podcast, we talked about the Prince of Egypt. And we discussed the fact that yeah. at the end of the Prince of Egypt, Moses is coming down the mountain with the Ten Commandments and is about to encounter golden calf worship. And now all I can think is that like, <laughs> in the actual sequel to the musical film The Prince of Egypt, he would instead encounter Aaron, played by Jeff Goldblum, hosting American Idol. <laughs> oh my god, I would watch that. Like, isn't that the perfect movie? Throw Sandra back in Miriam's the Paula Abdul character, the nice one. Zipporah's the mean judge. Randy, hey dog. This works. This works. Watching this movie, I also learned that the success of the Supremes is something that I never fully grasped. Much like American Idol, success oh, that yeah. will never, no one will reach again, probably. But I didn't know watching before reading about the Supremes because of this movie, that they were, like, 
the only band that people said could compete with the Beatles. Yeah, and the movie version of Dreamgirls is substantially more aligned with the career of the Supremes than the stage version is, in part because the stage version was in 1981, and so as they were writing it, they were like, we're gonna... We're going to make this a little hazier so that none of these living people get annoyed with us. And then by 2006, they decided, like, eh, we're just going to do it. I mean, I do like that a lot of the people were alive to watch this. Oh, yeah. And they were like, who was it? Mary Wilson came out of the theater like, that's more accurate than most people will ever know. And then, like, there was a bunch of people like Smokey Robinson, uh, a bunch of people who were like, um, oh, you're slandering the names of these people. They didn't do that, but, like the rumors that, like, the payola schemes and everything, like, they were, were like, pretty sure they did, buddy, but... Yeah. Okay, yeah, we'll, we'll pull back. We'll I pull don't back. think this movie made Barry Gordy worse than he was in his relationship to women. <laughs> I feel like we're pivoting pretty, pretty hard. Should we just start the episode? Yeah, I think we should get into it. I'm very excited <laughs> to talk about this movie. Welcome to We Love the Love, a Hollywood romance podcast. I'm Mark, and I'm Kay. And I'm Will, and I'm a ginger. This is a podcast dedicated to investigating one of the least important questions facing the world today. Does Hollywood romance actually make any sense? And are these people actually dateable? Or even likable? It doesn't matter if the romance is a main plot or a one-scene flirtation. We'll dig in and see what's there. And this week, we are taking a look at the 2006 Broadway adaptation hit movie, Dreamgirls. A movie where every new actor shows up and you're just like, they got him? They got her? In the last, like, 30 minutes of the movie, there's a scene just, like, a minute-long scene. And all of a sudden, John Lithgow and John Krasinski are there? Right, Krasinski <laughs> in a one-line role. Yeah. <laughs> like, Loretta Devine is there singing one song and then like, Hi. Passed in the credits on Wikipedia as Jazz Singer, played by Loretta Devine. <laughs> jazz Singer. All right. Uh, we also, as we've sort of alluded to, are joined by our friend Josh, noted Dream Girls fan, to talk about why he loves this movie. I think we couldn't cover this movie without Josh. I'm so happy to be here. So, Josh, when did you... This movie... Ah, when did I first see this movie? Yeah, when did you first watch Dreamgirls? So I first watched Dreamgirls against my parents' will in 2006 in my bedroom while they were taking a nap uh, because they said it was too too adult for me, but at 13, apparently. But I was like, I'm gonna watch this. Try and stop me. And I watched it, and I was like, I think I'm a different person now. And that's when you decided to become gay? Yes, very much. I was like, you know... They look like they're having a lot of fun over there. I think, I'm going to be a homosexual. Yeah, I'm going to be a homosexual. So what is it you love about this movie, Josh? What isn't there to love? The outfit changes, the montages, the belting, the hair, the wigs, the Beyonce. Like, every, like you said, every single moment you're like, you're in this? Oh my god. And you're looking like that snaps to the queen. Ugh. God, literally. The songs, like I don't know every word of every song, plus the deleted songs that didn't make it into the final movie. Ugh. Did, have, you heard, have you heard the song? You are my dream. I don't think that one was in the movie. No, I don't think. Maybe there was like one line of it. Yeah, but then I did a lot of research to find the rest of it because I was not going to let Dream Girls end with that one sneaky four-poster bedroom. I was very happy. I watched this movie first, I think probably in 2006, and I haven't seen it since. And I remember liking it, 
But I was really worried that there just wasn't going to be enough music because a lot of the serious musicals, when they're made into movies, reduce the amount of singing. And then it started and I was like, nope, this movie has got a lot of singing and I'm very excited. I first saw this movie on Thursday. What? I had never seen Dreamgirls. I assume you've, like... Sorry, I think I died. And you've heard the song. I'm vaguely familiar with it. You know, I was aware of its Oscar run and its existence in 2006, Mm -hmm. but I had never really seen it. I think it's an interesting, like, film adaptation of a musical. It's written and directed by Bill Condon, who we've talked about before because he wrote the film adaptation of Chicago. And the, mm-hmm. great movie. And this as is well. like the first big project that he gets underway after that. Like he had other stuff that was already in the works when Chicago started its like big awards run. So this is the first thing he really gets to do. Didn't he direct the Twilight movies too? He directed the two Breaking Dawn movies. Okay. Look, he's made a lot of junk. He directed the 2017 Beauty and the Beast. He directed The Good Liar, which like seems interesting, but I think doesn't hold together. He wrote The Greatest Showman, which some people like a lot more than I do. <laughs> I'm guessing everyone else on this call. I never watched it. I refuse <gasps> to watch P.T. Barnum, a slave owner, be whitewashed. I mean... P.T. Barnum is not your inspirational of... hero. Hey, a movie I'm not about P.T. Barnum, Barnum that does not involve him sewing the top half of a monkey to the bottom half of a fish and calling it a mermaid is not a P.T. Barnum movie in which I am interested. Also, a movie where he doesn't buy a slave that he said raised George Washington, which would have made her have to be 163 years old at the time. Again, I'm not watching this movie for P.T. Barnum. I'm watching it for Zendaya and Zac Efron swinging around in the air. The two hottest people I know. Bill Condon talked in interviews around the time of the release of this movie about how he was trying to reorient a lot of the music as much as possible to be on stage. And we talked about this in our Chicago episode, how a lot of the musical numbers exist in this sort of magical space. You think about like something like John C. Riley singing Mr. Cellophane, where we cut to him like on stage singing this song and we're meant to understood that it's not entirely real. With Dreamgirls, it's a little trickier because a lot of the music is the group actually performing. Mm-hmm. But one of the things that Condon does is he takes other songs and also puts them on stage, songs that are not on stage in the original 1981 Broadway play. The result of that is it kind of threw me off because like 45 minutes into the movie, we suddenly get our first non-diegetic song. We get the first song where we're like, oh, these characters are not literally singing. It's like the emotion in a musical coming out in Mm -hmm. music. And I like that in musicals. But when it comes to 45 minutes and many songs in, it feels like it's breaking the rules. And honestly, I never quite forgave the movie for it. It felt disjointed in that way. Step Into the Bad Side is a great song. It is a great song. It's just confusing in the middle of the song. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking yeah. about the, like, What About Me song in the dressing room. Oh, what about... What? See, I need to control myself or else it will just be me singing every single song. Sorry. I noticed, but I didn't find it as disjointing as you did. I understand where you're coming from, and I think that... Early on, a couple songs should have been left to stand alone and not been turned into, like, the stage songs if they weren't going to do that for all of them. But it is tough because something like And I'm Telling You, it can't just be a song on stage because that defeats the purpose. Right. And what about the songs that were both? Again, like Step Into the Bad Side, which transitions that into I don't a mind. stage I don't mind when the song is clearly occupying two spaces. To me, that's, like, mm-hmm. still following the rules that the musical established early on. Like I said, it it felt occasionally disjointed to me in a way that I found it hard to engage with songs that I felt were breaking the rules. 
It's interesting to say that though, because the song uh, "What About It What I Need," uh, going straight into family, which is then a song that the Dream Girls are singing as a stage song later, like that's a part of their record. So it's interesting that um, I guess because uh, their their uh, their songwriter Cece is the kind of the one singing to Effie about we're family, but then kind of taking uh, the emotions of being a family and turning them into money. And I guess that is kind of showing like, hey, even the real emotions are commodified, are turned into money. So it's like... Sure, which I think is an interesting idea that this story has. So like we said, Dreamgirls was adapted from a 1981 Broadway musical based in general on the music of Motown and in particular on The Supremes. As I learned, it is a filmoclef, according to Wikipedia. (laughs) (laughs) The Wikipedia page is a little snobby. Um, the original production was directed by Michael Bennett, who also directed a chorus line. It was nominated for 13 Tonys, including Best Musical, and it won six, including Best Book of a Musical. Basically, as soon as that happened, there was movement to try to adapt it for film, but those, at many turns, were blocked by a figure we've talked about a lot, David Geffen, who went on to be one of the founders of DreamWorks. Mm-hmm. He had financed the original production of Dreamgirls. It was actually the first one that he financed, and especially after... The director, Michael Bennett, died of AIDS. Geffen was very protective of Dreamgirls because he wanted to make sure that whatever adaptation there was didn't undermine Bennett's reputation by being bad. He was like, I want the version of this that people see to be something that Michael Bennett could have been proud of. That's actually such a nice reason for a movie to be blocked. Right. (laughs) It's like, I I feel like we've never had a movie getting blocked in production because someone wanted to preserve a memory. Usually it's because they're like holding on to the right so they can make money. So it became this convoluted thing. At the time in the 80s, Geffen was producing movies through the Geffen Company, which we talked about on our Beetlejuice episode, which Josh was also here for. He did start talking to Howard Ashman, who he knew from investing in Little Shop, about adapting it in the 80s with Whitney Houston to star as Dina. Ugh. Oh. That would have been... Again, okay, I need to take a second because this Whitney Houston casting would come into the same problem as the Beyonce casting, where we're supposed to believe that she's a mediocre singer. (laughs) Wait, wait, the movie asks us to accept the premise that Beyonce is hot but bad at singing. Right, and she's generic. Even her, even Dina's mom is like, I always thought her voice was just fine, and it's like, <laughs> ma'am, your daughter is Beyonce. Miss Tina, you need to stop, please. Sorry, but Whitney Houston, it would be the same thing. Right, that one fell apart because Houston wanted to play Dina, but also wanted to sing, and I am telling you, I'm not going. And they were like, you can't do both. <laughs> you just can't do both. Why does it have such me energy? <laughs> they like, could have, what they could have done is the all-share production of West Side Story, but it's an all-Whitney Houston production of Dreamgirls, where just she plays every role. Wigs. Yes. And you know she has all those wigs in her closet already. So then the Geffen Company was sort of folded into Warner Brothers around the time that Geffen himself went on to found DreamWorks. So Warner Brothers held on to the rights to Dreamgirls. And in the 90s, they came really close to making it directed by Joel Schumacher post-Batman. What a career jump. That would have been. Which is an interesting idea. I mean, not that big a jump if you watch the Schumacher Batman movies. 
Like, take a look at Batman and Robin. He could be making a musical. So the Schumacher version didn't happen because Warners had a different, like, R&B biopic. Why do fools fall in love that flopped? And they were like, no more R&B movies in the way that studios overreact to things of adjacent genres, especially when they involve black casts. And yet there were two movies about friends falling in love at the exact same time. Two different casts. What are you talking about? I mean, that's like every rom-com. Uh, but like, yeah. they're like, oh, uh, no, never mind. I'm not even going to go into that. <laughs> are you speaking specifically about friends with yes. benefits and no strings yes. attached? Okay. <laughs> Thank you, Mark. It's, it's the gay thing. Do you know who would have been cast in that production? The Schumacher one? Yeah. I don't think they really got that far. Okay. But then after Chicago is this big hit, the story goes that Bill Condon is at a party and he's talking to some people and they're like, hey, you know, I'm sure people are throwing a lot of different musical projects at you. What is it you want to do? And Condon, who says that he was at opening night of the Broadway version, is like, what I really want to do is make Dream Girls, but David Geffen is never letting those rights go anywhere. And the person he's talking to is like, oh, I know him. I'll call him up. And they call up David Geffen, and he's like, yeah, let's go for it. That's beautiful. So then the movie's made at DreamWorks. Originally, Warner Brothers was co-financing because they still held the rights. But they backed out because of the budget, which is like $75 million. Mm -hmm. So that's when David Geffen brought in Paramount as a co-financer. And the movie got made 25 years after it was on Broadway. Is this still the highest budget movie with a predominantly black cast? No, I know it was at the time. Oh, right. Yeah, it was at the time. And it held that record for a pretty long time, too. Yeah, I'm not sure what broke it, but I'm certain that today the record is held by Black Panther. Oh, yeah. I forgot about that. But I mean, Dreamgirls has even fewer white people than Black Panther. (laughs) This movie has John Lithgow and John Krasinski each for like in a one minute scene. And that's pretty much the only characters that aren't vague nightclub owners or mob members you're you're missing out on the best musical number in the show the remix of cadillac car It's so bad. I love how bad it is. What that made me think of was the ending of the 2020 Ma Rainey's Black Bottom adaptation, Mm -hmm. which I think adds the like killer thing of for the entire movie, the Chadwick Boseman character is trying to sell his music with him as a performer. And towards the end of the movie, the like record executive is like, fine, I'll buy your songs, but I will not use you as a performer. And the thing that the movie adds that's not in the play is the last scene is a white band crushing that music. And that's set like 30 years before this. Mm-hmm. And so now in, in the 60s version of it, they get to record the music, but they still get undercut by a white cover. But they should have gotten money for that. It's the 60s. There's no laws. I think that this movie really is showing the era where not even just white people stealing music from black people, but just the rampant theft of music in general is starting to be policed. Because white people were stealing music from each other at the time and not paying rights. Like in the especially 30s, 40s, and 50s. No one was paying rights. But this movie kind of shows the start of the era where studios would actually crack down on unauthorized covers and stuff like that. And it just adds the important element of, like, this was particularly a problem of white people stealing black people's music. There's a really good discussion of that in One Night in Miami, 
the mm-hmm. Regina King movie that came out last year. And there's the whole scene where uh, Curtis is like about to start the whole payroll scheme, and he's like talking like, "Who originally saying Hound Dog?" He's like, "Oh, this like they mom authority." He's like, "This has been going on for ages, so we we have to do what it takes to uh, actually make it in the game." Her version of Hound Dog is just so good. She's pretty rock and roll, basically. Yeah. Big Mama Thornton, it's Sister Rosetta Tharp, the true progenitors of the genre. I'm pretty sure Marty McFly invented rock and roll. <laughs> Your kids are <laughs> um, We've alluded to the cast a lot here. You know, we talked about it's the film debut of Jennifer Hudson coming off of her seventh place finish in American Idol. Uh, we have Beyonce as Dina, who campaigned pretty heavily for the role. And in a bananas unhealthy move that no one should replicate. In order to get more of a, like, really, like, sort of thin 70s look, she lost 20 pounds by eating a diet of water, lemons, maple syrup, and cayenne pepper. Oh, the master cleanse. That's, like, a thing. That's the master cleanse. I learned this. Nonetheless, not food. Beyonce lost 20 pounds. No, it's not food. And Jennifer Hudson, like, gained 20 pounds, basically, for these roles. And one of the only things I respect about Gwyneth Paltrow Besides her talent, an unfortunate addition to a terrible person is that she is extremely talented. But she, when asked about the master cleanse, was like, I tried it. It's not food. I was just hungry and angry all the time. Yeah. It is weird how thin Beyonce is in this movie. Yeah, it's strange. I mean, it's 70s, everyone, 60s, everyone was basically starting to do cocaine, so... So then they tried to get Jamie Foxx on pretty early, but he said no because they wouldn't meet his salary expectations. He's coming off of, like, Ray and Collateral, a bunch of Mm -hmm. leading roles. So he said no. Allegedly, they talked to Denzel Washington, Will Smith, and Terrence Howard about the Jamie Foxx role. Terrence Howard, as far as I'm concerned, is the only person who should come anywhere near that role. Like, Denzel and Will Smith would be bad in it. And those are actors who are almost never bad. They'd be too likable. Right, that's the He's thing. A, yeah, Terrence Howard has a long history in the black uh, movie pantheon of just playing the bad guy. And you're like, ah, it's him again. <laughs> but we all know he's a great actor, too, though. <laughs> so he would... Right, we talked about the best man. Great. Fox finally agreed to come back in when he heard that Beyonce and Eddie Murphy were doing it. And he's like, oh, I guess this is like a legit thing. And now, of course, Jamie Foxx spends his days tirelessly searching for someone who can beat Shazam. An important mission for us all. Josh, by your reaction, I can't tell if you know that Jamie Foxx hosts a game show on cable called Beat Shazam. I did not. I was like, was he the voice of the bad guy in Shazam? What? No. No. They they play music and contestants have to identify it faster than Shazam can. But you are right that by Shazam, we do mean Zachary Levi in his costume from the film Shazam. It is not the app. Isn't it part of his I think the funniest part about that is that Shazam just depends on the strength of the internet connection a lot. So they can really control the difficulty by just kind of ramping up the internet speed or throttling it if they want someone to win. So you both saw Dreamgirls in 2006. Mm. Uh, as did many people. The movie was a pretty big hit, and it pretty quickly became a fairly major awards player as well. One of the things they did was, after its premiere at the Ziegfeld Theater in New York, they put it on a 10-day road show through, like, big hall, like, concert halls around the country, which used to be very common with historical epics or musicals, but it hadn't been done since Man of La Mancha in 1972. The only movie I can think of that's done it since is The Hateful Eight, the Tarantino movie. But where it would go and play in these big concert halls and you would pay a premium ticket and get, like, a fancy program and, like, 
They make a whole event of it. And then the movie opened wide on Christmas Day and made a bunch of money, went on an awards run. As we've said, Jennifer Hudson won the Academy Award for Supporting Actress. Which is bullshit. (laughs) She is a lead. Uh, Does this movie have a lead? No. Everyone's a lead. There is no one lead. But the thing, they submitted Beyonce for Best Lead Actress. When it kind of should have been the other way around. And I would say they are both leads. Because Effie is the lead of the first act, and Dina is the lead of the second act, essentially. Yeah. Yeah, I guess that's the way to do it. Because thinking about Effie, I was like, she does disappear for like 30 minutes. But Dina's like barely talks for the first 30 minutes. There's a lot of significant look. But yeah, so they won Supporting Actress and Sound Mixing. They also got nominations for Supporting Actor for Eddie Murphy, Art Direction, Costume Design, and three nominations for Original Song for all of the new songs written for the movie except for Perfect World. And they all lost to the song from An Inconvenient Truth. But, like, Dreamgirls was seen early on as, like, a Best Picture frontrunner. It didn't make it in there. This is in the period when there were only five Best Picture nominees. But it hit a lot of the Precursor Awards, where it won the Golden Globe for Best Musical or Comedy. Bill Condon was nominated for a DGA Award. The movie was nominated at the SAGs for Outstanding Performance by a Cast. Like, it was hitting a lot of those precursors. You imagine it was probably, like, sixth or seventh on the Best Picture ballot. Mm. Mm-hmm. And it was uh, nominated for the NAACP Image Award and lost to The Pursuit of Happiness, you, Will Smith. the blockbuster Will Smith homelessness movie. Okay, I that did was not enjoy period that where, movie. Like, any anything Will Smith was in was gonna break a hundred dollars. Uh, was gonna break a hundred million. <laughs> I would imagine it would definitely break a hundred dollars <laughs> because that is ten movie tickets at the time. It's like nine movie tickets. Let's be real. All right, so I don't know if we have name dropped the other members of the cast that i want to give a shout out to particularly danny glover as marty madison danny who glover, never bad never. is eddie murphy as jimmy thunder early's original manager and he's just crushing it in this movie yeah i think glover's great i think eddie murphy is great he was very much seen as the prohibitive favorite for best supporting actor and it was a surprise when alan arkin Got it for Little Miss Sunshine. I didn't notice Yvette Nicole Brown as Curtis's secretary. I believe you, but I also did not notice it. It's on the Wikipedia cast list because I was trying to look up the actor who played Cece, Keith Robinson. I feel like I recognize him and then I looked up his credits and I was like, I have no idea who you are. He's mostly uh, a musician, which is always what they were looking for for that role. They got pretty deep in negotiations with Usher to play CC, <laughs> but they couldn't make the shooting schedule line up with his touring schedule that's the character that's based off Spokey robinson so gotta be kind of good they then offered the role to andre 3000 <laughs> but he said no uh, atlanta power and so they wound up with keith robinson who on the acting side of things has mostly done like tv movies but he was the green ranger in power rangers lightspeed rescue which you know is a nice chunk of resume in itself Saying, Dream Girls is down here, Green Ranger up there. Come on. <laughs> All right. So, should we start getting into the romance of this movie? There yeah, are many um, of them. Prelude, they're all bad. All yeah. of them. Which means I'm going to focus on the worst one. <laughs> All right, so every week we break down the romantic plot of a movie into five points. Josh is our guest. Will you lead us through the romantic plotline of the film Dreamgirls? I shall indeed. And in keeping with the theme, every point is named after a girl group song 
And I really want to see if Will can guess any of these girl groups. So you're going to ask Will to guess the singer of the song? Yes. And okay. I'm All right. Usually I'm running the games, not that. playing them. <laughs> okay. Will, so I know y'all hate it when they have this, but I always love a point zero because you got to set the scene. Really. So you're a menace to society. I know exactly what I am and I revel in it. So point zero shout out to my ex. Uh, this was, of course, a hit in the 1980s by the beloved band, the Herky Jerkies. So, so close. <laughs> and by close, I mean not even slightly, honey. No. I don't think I know this one. This is by Little Mix. Oh, yes. Shout out to my ex. I have never heard of that band name. Maybe I've heard this song. I knew this game would be fun. They're very British. So, point zero, shout out to my ex. It's, I guess it's very important to just know that, again, like you said, every romance in this is bad. And the romance one I want to talk about is the one between Dina and Curtis, of course. But it's important to note that Curtis was originally with Effie. And it kind of was Effie coming up and being like, hey, I'm a strong woman, and I see me some full beef, and I'm going to take it. You're strong and you're smart. You've taken my heart, and I give you the rest of me, too. You're the perfect man for me. I love you, I do. But then, once he actually has some power and had some time to, like, oh, I'm going to get what I want. He instantly moves over to Dina Jones. Right. Curtis is the Jamie Foxx character who owns a car dealership in Detroit, Mm -hmm. but wants to get into the music industry and hitches his wagon to this girl group, which at the time is known as the Dreamettes. And so it's, it's interesting to see, I guess it's, it's not, not interesting to see, but like uh, managers getting involved with their talent. Not necessarily. Bad. Don't do it. Bad, but, not uncommon, nor surprising in many ways. But interesting that Beyonce is it because it's like, oh, hey, Beyonce and your husband, Jay-Z. What's up? And with that, let's actually move on to point one. Point one. Waterfalls. Well. I mean. Oh, you're asking me who wrote the song Waterfalls? Yes. Pixie Six. <sighs> oh, Will. It is also. What if we so said, nice. don't go chasing waterfalls? Pixie Sticks 2 Hypercube? Please stick to the rivers and lakes that you're used to. I know you've heard the song. (laughs) I believe I've heard the song. (laughs) Oh, boy. Waterfalls by TLC. Uh, But none of these songs so far have been written by Stephen Sondheim, and I am at a loss. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, I love you so much. I would love to see a Stephen Sondheim girl group musical. It would rule. I'm just saying... Well, you're not beating Shazam right now. I don't expect to beat Shazam. Imagine the story of the Spice Girls as told by Stephen Sondheim. Oh, uh, I'm going to guess the Spice Girls. I literally already told you. He already said the answer. It's TLC. (laughs) Oh. Okay. Point one, Josh. Point one, waterfalls, comma, don't go chasing.
Because actually the first time you have any sort of indication that Curtis and Dean are in a relationship is during Jennifer Hudson's song, Love You, I Do, where she's singing about, I love Curtis so much, and he's giving meaningful looks in the mirror to Dina. Yeah, that's a good sequence. That's also, like, that's an example of what I like working in this movie, where it's clearly a mix of, like, driving the emotional narrative that the characters are engaging in, but also presented as diegetic music. I think it works really well. Mm -hmm. Also, this is preceded by one of the best scenes in cinema, where she stomps into his office and is like, you gave Martin Luther King a record? Can he even sing? Uh I laughed so hard. <laughs> Such a great laugh. We should note that Love You, I Do is one of the new songs written for the movie. The new songs share a composer with the original musical, but they have new lyricists because the original lyricist had died before the movie was made. And it's a great song. Again, I, I, I'll say that about every song in this movie, but like Jennifer knocks it out of the park, even though it isn't, I, and I'm telling you. She just, she just takes it and goes. But having that juxtaposed against like her man behind her, all up in Dina's business is like, ooh, well, this is good. This is some drama here. And then, of course, that's followed by the big confrontation in, and I am telling you, where she, like, says the same, you're sleeping with her and we all know it. And it's like, ooh. And this is still point one. The... This is still point one. Okay. I know. Um, it's all crazy. And I love it. It's beautiful. Okay. Which brings us actually to point two, damaged. Go on, Will. Who sings damaged? Oh, um, damaged is... By, I've already guessed the Herky Jerkies, right? You had twice. Is this Danity Kane? It is, Mark. <laughs> <laughs> My heart is damaged, damaged. You were picking such weird songs, <laughs> but they are great songs. I oh, okay. believe you, but <laughs> okay, damaged. Actually, the first time we actually see Dina and Curtis's relationship is after the time jump. After, and I am telling you, when they're married. Right. So we effectively have an act break where, as we've said, the first half is largely about. Effie, the Jennifer Hudson character. But as the band becomes more and more popular, Curtis, Jamie Foxx, wants to forefront Dina because she is more conventionally attractive and he thinks that will help drive them to success. And Beyonce is a more generic singer. So Effie is sort of downgraded to a backup singer. And like you say, along with that, Curtis shifts his romantic attentions from Effie to the new lead singer, Dina. And I call this point damage because the fact that the first we see of their relationship really is her unsatisfied with her career and going to kind of be like yell at him about why am I doing this movie? Why am I doing this, that, and the other? And it's interesting that even with uh, in the relationship with um, Curtis and Effie, there are moments of softness even but instantly when you actually see them together as a couple, it's tension off from the start and I'm like already you're like this ain't going to end well. Mm -mm. Well, that's because increasingly over time Curtis has less and less interest in a meaningful human relationship and he's more interested in making the business of rainbow records succeed and what the idea of him being in a relationship with dino represents where it's the executive with the top star and like he likes the visual of that dina is the product she is not oh bully a person and his big idea is that she should star in a Cleopatra <laughs> epic, which, as we all know, always goes very well in Hollywood. Always. It's such a good choice for the Boondoggle movie. It is. Right. <laughs> Especially when she was like, Dina says, for the most of the movie, I'm supposed to be 16. I was just like, 
I, I was thinking of like, you mean Diana Ross and the Wiz? To be fair, a little while ago, we talked about the space between us where Britt Robertson was 27. So <laughs> that kind of yeah, stuff oh is God. still happening. What movie was it where 34-year-old Jack Nicholson played a, a college freshman? Well, there's Jack a movie Nicholson where has always looked old, Jack Nicholson though, so. a college freshman. And it, it, you know, like I can, you can understand her frustrations because she's like, I want to be taken serious too, but he's very much like you're a product, and so like you're saying, well, it's mm-hmm. very much like their whole relationship is him being like, how can I squeeze more out of you? And it's like, ooh, emotions, those work for manipulating people. Yeah. So like, really off the bat, you're like, huh, this isn't gonna end well. This is gonna be bad. Good to know. And it does end badly. She feels increasingly isolated from him because he has no real interest in what she wants or really what any of their crew wants. We see how bad it is for the dreams. Imagine how much worse it is for all the like minor groups that are also signed with Rainbow Records. When you're not married to the owner, basically. Right. <laughs> like, I'm sure the Campbell connection is having a terrible time. I feel like in a way it could almost be better because his attention is so heavily directed elsewhere. Sure. And it's less personal. Or, like, they came up together, they were all friends. Yeah, and it, uh, the uh, the main people who uh, suffer at the time are the people who he came up with. Uh, J- uh, Jimmy Early, uh, CC, all of them, who are like, I want to write my good music. Like, nope. I want to sing this charity song. Nope. And eventually with uh, the uh, Eddie Murphy character's uh, suicide, all at the hands of, really, at the because this man was like, oh, I'm just really emotionally manipulating all these people to keep giving me what I want, and that does not you have good ends for anybody, really. And, like, it kind of harkens back to what I said earlier, kind of the uh, taking of CeCe's very emotional song, Family, with uh, Effie, and turning it into a commodity, into a song to make money off of. That seems very much like mm-hmm. a like a, a Curtis move to be like, oh, you wrote a song that was just supposed to make someone feel better? Oh, just money. Making money. Somehow. Go. And particularly pointed when they're singing it with The Replacement, <laughs> yep. With, um, when Effie has been driven out of the group, and so now they're singing this song that was sort of to or about her, and they're singing it as though she doesn't exist. I know. It's oof. Again, it, like, like, I, they're like, oh, she's just here for rehearsal. It's like, mm. it uh, parallels what happened with the, uh, the Supremes themselves, having band members in and out because of all the inner tension and kind of very much the uh, uh, overpressiveness of their manager. And kind of trying to find that perfect look that actually will appeal to the masses, whereas he then is like, will roll over anybody who's way to get there. Mm. That's why point two is called damage. All right. So is this point, are we moving on to point three? Yes. Point three. When I grow up. Gotta go. Uh, This is, of course, a corporate tie-in. It's by the Toys R Us kids. They affiliated with kids. Um, I think the one folded into the other. And this is, of course, the Pussycat Dolls. Like, I don't know what to do with them. Like, we're, we're just throwing you the, the lobs here, William. And just knock them out of the park like it's backyard baseball. Come on, man. I don't think all of these are lobs. <laughs> this, is the e- this is definitely the easiest one so far. <laughs> well, waterfalls, but... <laughs> okay, uh, when I grow up... This is a secret meeting by the pool, uh, wherein uh, Dina is meeting with outside executives, uh, movie executives, because she wants to play some girl from the hood named Dawn. 
I love that line. She's trying to play a serious exactly. movie. She's trying to uh she's trying to make herself be taken seriously as a as a performer. Again, which I think is a, uh, a beautiful parallel to, I guess, Beyonce herself at this time, where she's like coming out of Destiny's Child has been a solo artist for a while, but still we're like, this is early Beyonce. We're like, yeah, now we're like, oh, Beyonce. But I remember back then, ooh, Beyonce. Oh, I love her. And of course, talking about Beyonce's movie career, the same year Dreamgirls came out, she was in the Steve Martin Pink Panther movie. <laughs> Great movie as well. Is do, it? You know, do you know what her first movie was, Will? I know you don't. It was Carmen, a hip-hopera. Here's the thing. I love the portmanteau work of exactly. hip-hopera. I know you would. It's great. It wasn't a good movie, but mostly the name of it makes you feel wonderful. Have confirmed she had already been Foxy Cleopatra in Austin Powers in Goldmember. She is a whole lot of woman. Her first film performance that I was aware of. Yep. <laughs> so she takes this meeting with John Lithgow to try and become a serious actor. John Lithgow has this terrible wig on. (laughs) It's so bad. I love it so much. It's atrocious. It's like, let's do incredible wig work, except for this one disgusting, ratty, gray wig that we're going to force America's sweetheart John Lithgow to wear. All I could think of was that he looks like this Marvel Comics character named the Red Ghost, who is a bald soviet scientist with like wispy white hair coming down over his ears who in the 1960s wanted to fight back against capitalism by breeding an army of super apes and he had like telepathic gorillas that would fight against superheroes for the glory of the soviet union i mean I how else would you fight for the glory him. of the soviet union and as we said we also have john krasinski there as the screenwriter who has literally one line this movie's released during yeah, how far is like it? season three of The Office? Okay, it's so yeah, big-ish, so it's, but so it's he is a get in a way. This is the same winter that he has like two scenes in the holiday. <laughs> what I'm starring uh, Cameron Diaz and Kate mm-hmm. Winslet. Yeah, he mixes the trailers for Cameron Diaz's trailer company. Oh, I do love their trailer. And now I'm thinking of that John so is there anything more to point number sorry, three, or is uh, it just for taking this uh, Lithgow meeting? Sorry, um, but yes, uh, the secret meeting by the pool, it's already starting to show uh, these kind of cracks in the relationships as Dina is trying to gain her own independence. Hashtag free Britney. Uh, but like, you really see her uh, trying to break away, and be, like you said, be more be more of that serious performer. But because her entire career is wrapped up in her love life, basically, it means that going behind her manager's back is her husband's back. And he finds out about it, and instantly confronts her at dinner. He basically says, I own you. Basically says, you have no right to mm-hmm. to go anywhere without my say-so, or do anything that I don't tell you to do. He makes the idea that she's a product explicit. Very much mm-hmm. so. And this is the 73, I think. I'm not sure how far into their marriage this is, but can you imagine, you're, uh, like, a few years into your marriage, Mark, Nick looks at you and says, you're the product. I don't know. I don't know what the gay version of that would be, but... Well, look at the material. <laughs> I mean, we all know you're you're the money. You've got the podcast. <laughs> yeah, I'm raking in buku bucks from We Love the Love. <laughs> it does make even more explicit how just untenable this relationship is and just how messed up this decades-long 
relationship and how it, I guess it never was started on the uh, most earnest of beginnings in terms of like, oh, y'all are now all my performers. Dad's for me, lucky dad. From the beginning, Dina was always much more willing to be subservient to Curtis than Effie. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. She was like, this guy knows what he's doing. He's the money. Let's let's go with it. Right. Mm-hmm. And so she was in a role of just follower for the whole relationship, essentially. Whereas from the beginning, Effie like made her interest in Curtis clear. She was the one who was flirty. She tried to hold power in the relationship. And that is why Curtis eventually left her because he couldn't control her like Dina. And it's interesting to think about like how many uh, cis straight men are like, I need my woman in the kitchen. I need her following my commands. And then like when she has her own independent thoughts, like, oh, I don't need a, uh, these strong women. They're just so bitter because they mm-hmm. won't follow you around and wait on you hand and foot. So he went off and Curtis went off and found himself somebody who would. But eventually, Dina is now starting to resist. And that's, I mean, like, it kind of is after a decade of people telling her, like, you're great, you're amazing, you're a star, kind of finally it's sinking in and being like, why am I under his thumb? Why am I not doing more things Mm -hmm. to actually be the star that I want to be? And actually starting to ask those hard questions of, like, why am I still here with him? Why am I in this relationship? And what has become... Of my, what has become of my dream, comma, girl? <laughs> I will say, so again, knowing nothing about this, when they introduced themselves at the, like, ba- like basically talent show at the beginning of the movie as the Dreamettes, and the guy kind of gives them a look, I thought it was going to be like the Sam Raimi Spider-Man, yeah. where then he goes <laughs> out and is like, and introducing the Dream Girls! <laughs> no, they're it. never called the Dream Girls. Yeah. They're the Dreams. All right, anyway, does this take us to point number four? It does, which point four, boss, or B-O, dollar sign, dollar sign. Come on, Will, give it to me. Um, this one is by... Uh, uh, I got nothing. I'm thinking about dollar signs. Uh, we're going to say it's by Daisy and the McDucks. Oh, my God. You got it. Nailed it! <laughs> this is, of course, by Fifth Harmony. You know, I think I didn't know that was a girl group. <laughs> Will, That's you've a name seen I've the... heard, but I don't know that I know anything about them. Will, they are the singers of Work, the video with all the sexy construction ladies. We can work from home. Oh. I don't remember this. <laughs> okay, so point four. Boss. Um, this is the point uh, at this point in the movie I uh, listen another song written for the movie Beyonce singing song listen a banger a banger mm-hmm. dang and oh, that last line, I'm more than what you made of me. Follow the voice you think you gave to me. It really does. It really starts uh, showing Dina being like, no, I got to go find myself. And a lot of this is predicated with her finding the information on the payola, finding out that Curtis was directly responsible for keeping down Effie from like getting uh, recognition for her new song. 
and for her right. new solo career, um, a lot of the songs that Dina and the Dreams were singing what, were ripped off from songs that CeCe, after he left, wrote for Effie. Especially One Night Only. Exactly. Uh, which Curtis paid money to basically have destroyed. Mm-hmm. But Dina didn't know about this. Mm-hmm. And finding that out in particular, I think, is the, the main breaking for her. It's that tipping point where she's like, that it's not only her, kind of seeing really the effect that Curtis has on everyone around him and the the things he's been doing to people they were supposed to be, to love. Even if they fell out uh, a decade ago, there's still so much history between Dina and Effie that seeing this and kind of uh, very viscerally being presented with this information. One, it's like proof of, I guess, like the, the little nagging thoughts in the back of her head, like, is he the man I thought he was? And two... It's kind of the uh, the key she needs to get out from this relationship. The, oh, I I have your secrets, basically, so I can basically blackmail you into letting me go, letting me out of whatever Rainbow Records contract I have, out of this marriage, out of everything. And, and like she said, I got to go find my own. I got to find my own courage. Like, and to think of another seminal ballad, I got to find my own way. High School Musical 2, Vanessa and High School <sighs> That's a bad... No, I'm not going to let that stand. (laughs) Excuse me, I've got to move on and be who I am. That's a dumb part of that movie. I just don't belong here. I hope you understand. All right, Josh. What is point five? (laughs) Point five. This is really going to be a low baller. Well, I'm just... Just think of who's in this movie and think of their past careers. I'm hoping it's zero to hero, and I just have to say it's by the muses. <laughs> because I know about past careers, and I know that before being on American Idol, Jennifer Hudson played one of the muses on a Disney cruise ship. I actually did not know that, but it does make me very happy. I thought you would enjoy that. <laughs> but point five, independent woman. I mean, only because you gave me that heavy-handed clue, I'm going to say it's probably Destiny's Child, but I would not have gotten there otherwise. It was a very heavy-handed clue, and I was like, you need this. Here you go, buddy. This one's for you. But yes, point five, independent woman. When, uh, one, Dina finally has the, the courage to walk out. When her mother comes out to get her stuff, when she's basically like, F you at their final performance, which is like, this is when we're breaking up. And I do love Curtis trying to already push his new girl. Like, look at her. She's great. She's fantastic. And then she walks in and everyone's like, who, 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 the, who, the, who is she? Yeah, no one has any interest in, like, the next up-and-comer that Curtis has hitched his wagon to. Basically, yeah, because, right. like, you can see where the because real star Because she's Dina. Is. Exactly. It's like if Beyonce's father suddenly came out and was like, I have this new girl group, and we're all like, we don't care. Oh, he was the manager of Destiny's Child. That's for you, Will. I did know that. Because <laughs> they were known as Diana Ross and the Supremes. Mm-hmm. Dina Jones and the Dreams. She- Exactly. So, like, very much so being like, you're the name here. There's a reason that Curtis hooked himself to her, because Mm -hmm. you're the name. And when she's able to walk out, it's like, oh, nothing else. Who's that guy? You might have created them, but they're bigger than you could ever be. And plus, 
this is the moment where she finally has her kind of reconciliation. Well, the dreams themselves have their reconciliation with Effie, where she finally gets to sing lead in this finale as she does the Dream Girls reprise. That's such a beautiful moment. Such a beautiful outfit. Ugh. A lot of great costumes in this movie. This was a great costume movie. And, like, what do you do? If you're going to do Motown, you've got to go all in on the outfits. And the wigs. <laughs> and sometimes yeah, Eddie Murphy's you turn wig. around. And, of course, you, you just kind of focused in on the the main romance of this, but there's a lot of other romance on the margins. That are We've got Eddie Murphy around. as Jimmy Thunder Early, whose romance kind of kicks off the plot of the movie because he's been sleeping with his, background his previous backup singers and they find out he was married and quit, which is mm-hmm. why the dreams get hired in. And so, uh, Anika Noni Rose's character, Tiana... The real Aunt Peggy of this movie. <laughs> she really is, but she does such an earnest job. I love her in it so. They're cheating on each other, or he's cheating on his wife uh, uh, with this backup singer. Curtis is cheating with that backup singer. Michelle Leal, the secretary who replaces Effie, she starts sleeping with Cece apparently in the future. Everybody's just, they just f***ing. It's all bad. Don't do it. No, and it is very much so this, the bad idea of like you're mixing up all these emotions into this business. And you're just like inter it's like the X-Men basically. But it's it, there's obviously gonna be problems. And I guess even in the beginning, you can already start seeing like you said, Jimmy Early cheating on his wife with his backup singers is like the first inkling you should have that like, hey, maybe the romances in this movie aren't gonna be great. Hmm. So, after watching all this, do we find the romances of Dream Girls to be believable? Oh yeah. One, I think so. One, because they're based on reality. Two, because R. Kelly and his harem exists. Three, Jay-Z and Beyonce, a manager who married his uh, his talent. Just like, you see it over and over right now, today. Is Blake Shelton like Gwen Stefani's agent? No. They're together, but they got together as voice coaches. Speaking yeah. of a different... They didn't, they didn't have like a relationship professionally okay. besides just being co-judges on a tv show and like there's something to say about like starting at the beginning together and kind of growing into this huge business as a as a family as a as a group of people who love each other but i guess everybody should be in therapy uh just saying but uh, when they aren't really dealing with all these underlying emotions or yeah he didn't really deal very well with telling effie you're no longer the lead either just like never really dealt with why uh, uh, those problems Jamie Foxx does a great job showing the charming side Mm -hmm. as well as the manipulative side. So you see why these women would be attracted to him, even beyond just the fact that he is Jamie Foxx. Right. I mean, and that's why he's such good casting for the movie. Right. And then there is a charisma to Eddie Murphy that Mm -hmm. you can see appealing to Laurel. If you enjoy the Eddie Murphy performance here and you have not seen Dolomite Is My Name (laughs) on Netflix... I really recommend it. Eddie Murphy so, is just such Josh, a great actor. On a scale of 1 to 10, with 1 being the least believable and 10 being the most, where would you rate Dream Girls? As a romance. I would give it a For 10. Because uh, I don't think I could ever rate anything about Dream Girls below a 10. But also, it's just very believable. <laughs> Again, with like for all the reasons that I mentioned before, where it's like people who put kind of their fame in and being rich and having everything before the actual feelings of real people around them. It's a very, very common thing in the music industry. And I am not at all surprised that it ended up as it did. Will, what are you thinking? I don't know. I was about to ask you. 
<laughs> I'm not sure. Definitely high. Yeah. I can't really think of a reason why it wouldn't be a 10. That's the thing. I'm kind of I'm kind of there. Like this does all feel pretty plausible. Mm-hmm. I'm always hesitant. Like I want the 10s to be special, but this movie that everything is so well portrayed as to mm-hmm. you would I believe all of these relationships would happen and I believe the course that they ran would happen. Yeah, it seems like this is a 10. It feels like Now, do you think any of the romantic leads is dateable? Maybe. I think I want to date none of the leads of this movie. I don't want to date anyone. I was about to say maybe Cece, but even he's a bit shady. He's not really a romantic lead. I guess he starts dating the cherry songbird stand-in. But in terms of like Effie, Dina, Curtis, Laurel, Jimmy 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 Early, any of them. Nope. Not even slightly. I don't think there are any couples together at the end of the movie for when they stay together. Is Cece still with, what, Michelle? <laughs> yeah. Michelle Leal is her real name in real life, but I guess. Sure, sure. why not? They'd probably stay together. So if Cece. you did have to choose one person in this movie to date, who would you pick? The jazz singer, played by Loretta Devine. <laughs> Loretta Devine's just jazz. the jazz singer. I'm going to go with Danny Glover. I was going to pick Barney Madison, too, I just to hear him so speak much. to me. Well, yes, love his voice, obviously. But he is, like, a good dude throughout the movie where he's, like, looking out for people and trying really hard not to take advantage yeah. of them. He looks out for right. Jimmy. He actually the he cares. He, he tries so hard to get Effie's career back. Like, this is your last shot. Give it through. So No, Josh, Sharon Leal is the actress. Michelle Morris is her character. Because Nick said to me during the movie, why is the third one always Michelle? <laughs> that is her Good point. <laughs> Which... I don't think the screenwriters probably meant it as a jab to Destiny's Child, Michelle. <laughs> there were too many maybe. things. There were a lot of things that I kept side-eyeing, like, hmm, is that shade? This last question, kind of moot. <laughs> Doesn't apply. Dreamgirls is adapted from a stage musical, so it already <laughs> is one. <laughs> what yes. if you made a musical of the musical? A musical well, of I mean, the The only musical. way to do this would be like a high school musical, the musical, the series kind of thing, where you make a musical about making Dreamgirls. Which is a great show that I've cried at multiple What? Mm. Okay. When we're a show we've talked about light. too much on this podcast. When I know, that's why I am going to say... My heart's no longer broken. I'm going to say that's about it for this episode, because I do not care to talk about high school musical, the musical, the series. <laughs> Something Mark does care to talk about is our next movie, which is the classic 40s romance, I Married a Witch. I know zero about this movie, except that is in the Criterion Collection. I am stoked. It's on HBO Max. Go to the Max. Watch I Married a Witch with us. We're hyped. <laughs> Until then, you can follow the show on Facebook and Twitter at Love the Love Pod, and you can email us questions or movie suggestions at lovethelovepod at gmail.com. Make sure to rate, review, and subscribe, especially on Apple Podcasts, to help new people find the show. Last question, Josh. What is the best piece of dating advice we got from Dream Girls? Ugh, God, don't. Do not follow Just Dream Girls. Don't at date. All. <laughs> don't date. <laughs> don't date the talent. Don't date your manager. Don't don't date. Don't, don't. My advice, be unoffensive and in the background. Don't be the main character, and you might get off the hook. (laughs) Just look at Cece and Michelle. Mine is going to be, 
if you find out someone has been lying about key parts of their life, it's good to break up with them. I'm taking my dating advice from those background singers from the beginning of the movie. <laughs> well, also, that's what Dina does. That's true. After a decade. Yeah. All right. There you go. Until next time, I'm gay. And I'm a ginger. So between the two of us, we know everything there is to know about romance. Bye. Bye. Bye.